online. This is Radio 3. Good morning from me, Peter Lewis. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong. A warm welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. Here are the business headlines for Tuesday the 6th of September. Activity in China's private services sector slowed in August as COVID-related lockdowns intensified. The Kaishin Services PMI fell to 55 from 55.5 in July, but remained well in expansion territory, beating economists' forecasts of 54. The People's Bank of China will cut the foreign exchange deposit reserve ratio of financial institutions by two percentage points to 6%, effective from the 15th of September, to try and relieve downward pressure on the yuan. The Chinese central bank's move comes after the yuan dropped to the lowest level since 2020. Pessimism in Hong Kong's private business sector increased last month. The S&P Global Hong Kong PMI was down to 51.2 in August from 52.3 a month earlier, while marking the fifth straight month of growth in private sector activity. The latest result was the weakest in the sequence due to slowing demand after the recent spike in COVID-19 cases. The Kremlin said yesterday Russia's gas supplies to Europe via the Nord Stream 1 pipeline will not resume in full until the West lifts sanctions against Moscow over its invasion of Ukraine. Russia's state-owned energy group Gazprom had previously said it was halting flows for the pipeline because of a technical fault. The cost of living crisis will be the top issue facing the UK's new Prime Minister Liz Truss, who defeated former Chancellor Rishi Sunak by a smaller margin than expected in the Conservative Party leadership race. Deutsche Bank warned Monday that the UK is close to a balance of payments crisis that could send sterling sharply lower if the new UK government embarks on an unfunded and untargeted fiscal expansion. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by James Wong at Lead Securities and Betty Wang from ANZ with a view from Japan. Here's Nick Smith of CLSA. Money Talk on Radio 3. U.S. markets were closed overnight for the Labor Day holiday. In Europe, the region-wide Stock 600 index fell 0.6%. Germany was the worst performer, with the DAX index down 2.2%. The FTSE 100 in the U.K. closed 0.1% higher. Hong Kong stocks dropped yesterday to a five-month low after a sharp sell-off on Wall Street on Friday. And as China extended COVID restrictions, the Hang Seng Index slid 226 points, or 1.2%, to 19,226. That's the lowest level since mid-March. The tech index tumbled 1.9%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was up 0.4% at 3,200. China's largest electric automaker, BYD, slid another 5.9% in Hong Kong on Monday. That follows a 14% lost last week after Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway sold another 1.72 million shares, cutting its stake in the Chinese car maker from 19.02% to 18.87%. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil is 2.4% higher at $95.23 a barrel after OPEC Plus said it would cut oil production by 100,000 barrels a day next month. 
Dutch TTF Gas Futures, which is the benchmark European gas contract, jumped by more than a third to as much as €284 per megawatt hour. That's close to all-time highs hit under two weeks ago. Prices did ease later in the day and were up 17% by the close. Gold is trading at $1,714 an ounce. There was no trading in U.S. bond markets, but in the U.K., the 10-year gilt yield rose as much as eight basis points on Monday to reach 3% for the first time since 2014, after Liz Truss was named as the next U.K. Prime Minister. And in the currency markets, the euro has fallen to a 20-year low against the dollar, dropping as much as uh, to 0.9879. It later recovered a little, and it's currently down 0.2% at 99.5 cents. The Japanese yen is trading at 140.41 against the greenback. Sterling is close to its weakest level since 1985. It's trading at $1.15.5 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 7 cents. The People's Bank of China will cut the foreign exchange deposit reserve ratio by two percentage points for financial institutions. Offshore yuan is 0.4% lower at a fresh two-year low of 6.94. And Bitcoin is 1% lower at $19,800. U.S. stock index futures have just opened following the Labor Day holiday yesterday. S&P 500 futures are about 0.1% higher. Um, around Asian stock markets this morning in Australia, the ASX 200 is up 0.1%. Stocks have just opened in Japan. The Nikkei 225 is down 0.2%. In South Korea, the Cosby is up 0.4%. And looks like there's going to be no change in the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Let's welcome our guests. We have with us James Wong, Chief Investment Officer and Managing Director at Lead Securities. Morning, James. Good morning, Peter. And also with us is Betty Wang, Senior China Economist at ANZ. Welcome to Money Talk, Betty. Morning, Betty. Uh, Peter. <laughs> Thank you. Um, let's start with China's economy. Activity in China's private services sector did slow in August as COVID-related lockdowns intensified. The Kaichin Services PMI fell to 55 from 55 and a half, did remain well in expansionary territory and beat economists' forecasts. Total new orders rose for the third straight month, but foreign demand remained subdued with the new export business sub-index sinking for the eighth consecutive month as travel curbs continued on the mainland. And the composite PMI dropped to 53 from 54 uh, the previous month. James, do you want to sort of kick off and tell us what you think now? We've had the full set um, of PMIs, haven't we, out of China. What does it tell us about the, uh, the momentum in the Chinese economy? Yeah, I think it's a pretty mediocre set of data. Uh, we don't really see a lot of surprises here. And I think the good thing is the trend continues that the service industry Somewhat, uh, the increase in service industry somewhat uh, uh, compensates for the uh, decrease in factory activities uh, in, in terms of the entire economy. So uh, I don't really put a lot of emphasis on this uh, set of data. Betty, what, what are your thoughts? 
Yes, indeed. Although we do have a better than expected non-manufacturing PMI coming out in August, um, but we are um, relatively cautious about the near-term outlook for China, especially in services sectors with more uh, cities, even especially major cities, uh, to be either doing the mass testing or tiered management because of the COVID flare-ups. Um, so that's why we've download, downgraded our GDP forecast for this year last week uh, from 4% to 3% just to reflect our updated views on China's uh, recovery momentum for the remaining part of this year. Officials are talking a lot at the moment um, about accelerating their stimulus uh, in this quarter. Um, They were noting that there's about 300 billion yuan in funds that are going through a a financing program. Local governments as well have sold three and a half trillion yuan of special bonds. Is, Is this all working? Is it feeding through to the economy? Oh, well, I think it's better than nothing, uh, but just because we do have multiple downside risks coming out from both domestic and ex- external markets. Um, so we are, uh, we are not that op- uh, optimistic as uh, the early of this year in terms of our views on China's growth, especially uh, towards the end of this year. Uh, well, the uh, special local government bond issuance and also the policy bank lending will help to stimulate some of the infrastructure investment uh, in the future, but it will help little to uh, leave the overall sentiment, especially in services sectors. Um, so if you look at uh, the um, our monthly GDP tracker for July, um, the GDP uh, just ba- uh, barely grew by 2.8% on a, on a year-on-year basis. So it does tell you that how uh, slow that economy um, has recovered, letting alone the uh, COVID spread over, um, getting into um, August and September. Um, with the party congress coming up uh, in the middle of October, uh, we think that COVID control policy in China can only become uh, more stronger rather than looser. Um, James, one of the things I wonder about all this stimulus is that a lot of it has been focused on the export-facing Stainhose Enterprises sector. So as a result, we've seen this big surge in the trade surplus, but it's also coming about because um, imports are are completely stagnated, isn't it? So isn't the problem that the stimulus is not going to the household sector, which ultimately is the importer um, of of goods? And um, And as a result... Um, really, um, we're just not seeing any growth in the household sector but, uh, with the consumer at all. Uh, yes, I think that's a, that's a valid uh, deduction. Because uh, we, when, when we look at the July numbers for household uh, mortgages or household loans, you can see the July numbers is about uh, one-eighth, a little mm. more than one-eighth of the June numbers. So people are not really spending in China, and uh, it's pretty obvious why, because they are holding multiple flats or they are... Uh, their their uh, the value of their the the flats that are the, that they are living in is going down, and uh, without the effect of the wealth, they are really reluctant to spend. And uh, for in terms of small and micro enterprises, all the uh, stimulus money uh, is hard, it's kind of hard for those uh, small and micro uh, enterprises to get those stimulus or get those loans because the uh, the banks are now going on a very strict. Uh, uh, a vetting process. Uh, mm. They want to know if you have the capability of repay the loan. I mean, if in this economy, if the, the small and micro enterprises go into the bank to, to try to secure a loan, they're probably already in trouble. So most of them cannot pass that line to get those loans that are supposedly to be uh, more necessary for them than for the uh, state-owned enterprises. But then they all, when we look at the uh, the uh, 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 industry 
industry profits numbers in July and in June, you can find out that small and uh, even small to medium enterprises cannot really have a, a increase in profits. Mm-hmm. A lot of the increase in profits are contributed to uh, by by SOEs. So mm. I think that's that's kind of a problem. So Betty, then does this just mean China's growth model is broken? What we're finding is that the the loss in demand from consumers and the household sector is greater than what's being gained uh, from the export sector. So it's leading to lower growth. It's also what's pushing the yuan lower, isn't it? Uh, yes. Well, if you ask for uh, the consumer sector's performance, I do have uh, a couple of things to add on that. Um, first of all, I think household income outlook has become um, anemic because of the COVID control policies, which has hurt a lot of SMEs and the services sector. So these pose downward pressure on household income, which, uh, you know, squeeze out their spending capacity. And the second is because of the property market downturn. So these, um, uh, this actually uh, made their well um, shrink because of this property downturn. So uh, considering these two factors, I don't think even you stimulate the consumer sector that will have any, you know, significant impact. On the other hand, if you look at the local government, uh, we should take the major responsibility in sponsoring or uh, stimulating household sectors, but actually they do not have too much capacity in doing that because of the, uh, you know, the sliding land uh, sales revenues and also the property market downturn. Mm. Um, so all in all, um, yes, it's quite hard to stimulate consumer sectors, but um, Chinese economy has to rely on export or net exports uh, to to leave the uh, um, the overall growth. Um, but actually, we are quite cautious about China's export outlook towards the end of this year. One major factor is because of the um, the ending of the uh, surge in electronic uh, cycle, which is a major driver to China's exports back to last year. Um, so getting into this year, actually, um, the semiconductor sector has performed less uh, um, or um, not uh, or worse than last year. So that's why we are cautious about China's export outlook, which, of course, will have some impact on China's FX uh, currency rate in the near term. But on the other hand, uh, with the U.S. dollar, the DXY heading higher. Um, so this also is another factor which uh, has pull, uh, made CNY depreciate in the uh, recent months. James, what what do you make of this cut um, in the foreign exchange deposit reserve uh, ratio for financial institutions? We're seeing the uh, the Chinese yuan. It's it's heading towards seven, isn't it, against the dollar? It's down yeah. now more than three percent since early August. It's been down for six consecutive months now. Is this going to be enough to stop the decline in the yuan? Uh, I doubt it. This uh, forex reverse ratio has been uh, manipulated a couple of times since 2006, I think, uh, about about four to five times. And uh, the cut only started this year. Uh, back in previous years or the previous trials that the PBOC was trying to manipulate yuan, they were increasing the uh, the ratio so that the yuan won't appreciate too much. So mm-hmm. this, this year they're doing the reverse they're trying to stop the depreciation of the yuan, but uh, back in history, all these years, all these files, uh, you can see the, uh, the, the the yuan never moved in the direction that the PBOC intended them to move when uh, making changes on the forex reserve ratio. And this this year is the same. And I think the 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 the, the value of the yuan is uh, in in the long run is a way way uh, it's a voting machine both it's a vote of confidence on Chinese economy or on the confrontational 
nature of uh, between China and U.S. And uh, right now, I don't think uh, the market is having a lot of confidence in China. Okay, Betty, I want to ask you about Hong Kong's economy because we've had data out from here as well. Uh, The Hong Kong PMI down to 51.2 in August from 52.3 a month earlier. It is the fifth straight month of growth, but it is the weakest out of those five months. Uh, There was slow expansion in output and new orders. Export orders continued their contraction. New business from China, that was the softest in 10 months. And employment shrank at a rate that was the sharpest since December 2020. What do you make of that? Well, indeed, there are a lot of headwinds um, in um, Hong Kong's economy, so not only because of the exports, um, so which is uh, closely uh, linked to the uh, main, uh, mainland Chinese um, exports. Um, on the other hand, the domestic um, economy is also um, is also under a downward pressure because of the uh, you know the uh, services sector's weakness and also the COVID policy in in China in mainland China. So there's no opening um, or um, the opportunity for, for, for Hong Kong to, and China to reopen the border seems still um, quite remote. Uh, so with this, we don't see, you know, the money flows and the labor flows um, as frequent as in, a, in the past. Um, so all these are counted to Hong Kong's uh, downside risk into the macroeconomy. And we have actually also downgraded our t- uh, Hong Kong GDP forecast for this year uh, from above 1% to minus 0.7% on a year-on-year basis. So this also reflects our pessimism on the local economy. So you're predicting negative growth for this year now in, in Hong Kong. Right. Okay. James, I want to ask you about uh, what's going on in the uh, in the energy markets. We've had OPEC Plus say today they're going to cut oil by 100,000 barrels a month, uh, which takes it back to the level seen in August. It also reverses the increase that we saw uh, following President Biden's visit to, uh, to Saudi Arabia. And now we've also got Russia uh, basically saying gas supplies to Europe are going to be cut indefinitely, at least until the West lifts sanctions against Moscow. Um, how big a, an energy crisis um, are we facing, do you think? I think uh, Germany probably is, is in a more uh, more dangerous position than anybody else because uh, Germany is uh, the German Germany relies about uh, relies on Russia for about one uh, one half of its oil and uh, one third of its gas. Mm. And the, the 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 structure of the German economy is uh, disruption disruption is optionally uh, heavily on, on uh, industrials. So without the energy resources, the, our, the, the entire economy, especially uh, in a process of revamping, is going to be facing a lot of difficulties. And I think Europe is going to back down at some point because this is not a cost they, that they can live with. And uh, uh, you, But the, still, the, the price of oil and gas uh, especially gas in Europe has been uh, has really been more than anyone could have ex- expected. And mm-hmm. In in terms of oil uh, oil barrel equivalents, the gas uh, in Europe has been uh, once hit uh, 530 dollars per barrel, sometimes 540 per barrel. So that's mm-hmm. uh, that's about five times the the same the price of gas in the states. I think it's not going to stay. They're that long, and I think Europe is kind of prepared in terms of their reserves being filled up by 80%. But I think it's going to be a longer battle than anybody else would expect. Maybe lasting several winters? No, probably not. I think this winter and next winter, probably yes.
Mm. But Betty, what does this mean for the region out here? Does it have a, an in, big impact at all on the Asia-Pacific region, this, uh, this oil cut and the, and the big surge in energy prices that, that we're seeing? Yes, well, actually, after the COP26 last year, um, the market has actually become uh, quite, um, you know, um, optimistic about the ESG, um, ESG campaign. But of course, the energy crisis getting into this year um, has raised a lot of concerns and we faced a lot of um, pushbacks. And not only in European countries, but also in China, if you look at the energy shortage last year. And even, you know, in August, West Sichuan has reported energy shortage because of the extreme weather. I think I think um, the um, uh, the support to traditional um, coal and oil um, has become stronger. Um, but to me, I think at the same time, it also spell, uh, speaks well about how important that we need to shift to um, renewable energies uh, because that will make mm-hmm. countries less dependent on other countries and at the same time uh, taking consideration of the uh, environmental impact. So I, I, I do think that in the short term we might have some pushbacks, but over the longer term, this is the right, I mean, the ESG is the right way for, for us to push forward. Okay, thanks very much. That's Betty Wang, Senior China Economist at ANZ, and James Wong, Chief Investment Officer and Managing Director at Lead Securities. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Times 8.24 on the phone from Tokyo is Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA. Morning, Nick. Good morning, Jeff. Um, let's continue this uh, this conversation about the, the global energy crisis. I think the Japanese government was listening to your last appearance on this program and, and your recent uh, research reports calling for a restarting of the nuclear power plants. That seems to be exactly their uh, remedy to this problem. Yeah, I mean, obviously Japan's been through... Um a lot of problems over the last uh, six or nine months on on energy. So, you know, at the back end of last year, it's um, I was saying that uh, Japan um, couldn't honour its energy its uh, CO two pledges without uh, um, without restarting nuclear. Then we had a surge in oil and gas prices, which um, sent the energy prices up. Then uh, um, we've got um, energy uh, generation supply shortfalls. So uh, it has to bring nuclear back just so that it's got enough uh, generating capacity. Then we had problems with the the trade and the current account, which are um, weakening the yen um, just because the uh, the amount of uh, hydrocarbons imported uh, pushes down the the trade surplus. Then we've had a weakening yen as well, which uh, makes it even worse. So finally, the, uh, the prime minister, I mean, we've had a prime minister that we've been talking about saying, very great man, we don't know what he believes in. And then suddenly he's, he's become, um, he's been pounding the table on, on nuclear and saying, we do have to get this, uh, this restarted. So he said, we need to have 10 nuclear power plants uh, restarted um, this year. Um, then he's even gone forward to say, and those two nuclear power plants that we're midway through uh, building, we have to get those um, uh, completed as well, which was precisely what I was, uh, I was saying in my, my report on, on nuclear renaissance. In, in Japan's energy mix, where do renewables fit in? Is there more emphasis now on building up them as, as quickly as, as possible? <clears throat> well, obviously, renewables have got a problem in the, in the context of Japan. So if you think in terms of, of solar, well, Japan's built a, a lot of, uh, of solar, but you think about it as taking up 
an order of magnitude more space. Mm. Uh, and so if you're a country like Japan, which is mostly um, mountains and uh, uh, and small percentage of uh, um, livable uh, land area, then you've got high population density death. You necessarily need high power density, and that means nuclear or thermal, not uh, renewables. So that's one of the problems, and I make calculations saying, well... Um, showing how much um, land area would be needed for um, for uh, um, adding capacity with, with solar. But the other problem is, of course, the the um, uh, continental shelf drops away very, very fast off the, uh, the coast of Japan, which means offshore uh, wind is, is much more problematic for Japan. So really, you're looking at uh, the one source, the, the single source of... Um, of um, uh, generating capacity that has no uh, carbon footprint and doesn't have problems with big swings in its supply with the uh, the amount of daylight or the amount of, uh, of wind going through. So for Japan, it is absolutely crucial. As a company that's heavily dependent on imported hydrocarbons from the volatile Middle East, that it gets uh, nuclear restarted. And, and we now have a... Uh, a prime minister in Japan who really understands that and is prepared to take the political risks of uh, putting his name behind it and pushing. Okay. Now you mentioned the yen. Uh, the yen is on the slide once again. It's now fallen uh, below one forty um, uh, against the U.S. dollar. What, what is the impact of this on the uh, on the Japanese economy and also on uh, corporate profits? Yeah. I mean, I think. Um Governor Kuroda, the, uh, the Bank of Japan, has, has long said that a weak yen is a positive for, her, for econ- the economy, net-net. I mean, obviously, there are always parts that, uh, that are hurt by it and there are parts that uh, benefit from it. But net-net, it's a, uh, it's a positive. Um, back in 1995, when, uh, uh, when the, the strength of the yen and, and, uh, was at its peak and before we got into deflation, since there, the real effect of exchange rate for, her, for Japan has weakened by 58, 59%. And I think you know, we're now sort of 18, 19% weakened than we were last year on that, uh, on that measure, just because everyone else is, in addition to the currency, and everyone else has got um, more inflation than Japan. That makes Japan a brutally competitive uh, production location. Mm. I mean, I, I think at the moment, stock prices aren't figuring that in too much because they're much more uh, focused on yes but we're going into recession I, I, i'm not investing on um on that so much as just trying to protect uh, whatever capital i've got mm. and then briefly on earnings what does this all mean for for japanese profits well i think the uh, the weak yen will paper paper over a lot of problems in um, in japanese profitability i think they're holding up reasonably well remember this is an economy that is doing a lot of the positive things that other people did late. So it's finally coming in with, uh, with fiscal stimulus, and it's finally reopening from, uh, from the pandemic later than, uh, than others. Mm. So I, I would have thought that profits in Japan will look relatively good. And, of course, the market is dirt cheap. So that makes it a, uh, an interesting market to be invested in. 
Nick, thank you very much indeed. That's Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Tokyo right now, the Nikkei 225 is creeping ahead. It's up about half a percent at the moment. The ASX 200 in Australia also turned positive, up 0.4%. South Korean stocks moving further ahead, up three quarters of a percent. And futures markets pointing to a gain of 75 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Stay tuned to Back Chats coming up after the news with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. The weather forecast mainly fine, very hot and dry. Maximum temperature around 35 degrees. It's going to be windier with occasional showers and slightly lower temperatures in the next couple of days. The very hot weather warning and the red fire danger warning are in force. The temperature right now, 30 degrees, 61% relative humidity. Coming up to 8.31, here's Andrew Schwoski with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. Heavy rain and strong winds have knocked down trees and walls and caused flooding and power outages across South Korea. Typhoon Namnor made landfall in the early hours of this morning after passing Jeju Island at midnight. It was downgraded to strong from super strong. RTHK's correspondent in Seoul, Frank Smith, gave this update. Kinnor made landfall at Koji Island at 4.50 a.m. this morning. Koji Island is uh, on the south coast of South Korea. It's a shipping center, and those shipyards were shut down as the storm approached. It's a massive storm, 400 kilometers wide, up to 200-kilometer-hour winds at that time. Ferries and flights have been delayed and canceled. Up in Seoul, we got a lot of rain here and flooded the street and the Han River. So this storm, this weather movement is really hitting the entire country. The administrator of the Hong Kong Superbike Club says there should be clearer guidelines over which roads are risky for motorcyclists. Douglas Thompson was commenting after a motorcyclist thought to be, thought to be holding a learner's permit was seriously injured on Sheko Road on Sunday. Under current rules, learner cyclists are restricted from certain roads, such as highways, and cannot take passengers, but are allowed to drive home. Thomas said Sheko Road had sharp bends and blind corners. He called on motorcyclists to educate themselves about risky roads and those that learners can't access. It's not very accessible or readily available to find this information online in terms of which roads are prohibited. So I think that's something that could do with being updated. Like, for example, if you're a loner rider now, it's not that easy to find out which roads are prohibited and which roads are accessible. Pretty much have to have a look on the road to see if there's a sign prohibiting you to ride. So maybe that's something that could be addressed as well. Canadian police say Damien Sanderson, one of the suspects in the mass stabbing in Saskatchewan, has been found dead. A senior police official said the other suspect, Damien's brother Miles, is still at large but is believed to be injured. Rhonda Blackmore is the commanding officer of the Saskatchewan Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Miles Sanderson may have sustained injuries. This has not been confirmed. But we do want the public to know this because there is a possibility he may seek medical attention. This brings the count of this tragedy to 11 deceased persons, 19 injured and 13 crime scenes. 
Ireland's Data Protection Commission says it's fined Instagram a record 405 million euros for breaching regulations on the handling of children's data. The commission probe centered on the appropriateness of Instagram profile and account settings for children and the firm's responsibility to protect the data protection rights of children. The company said it planned to appeal. Instagram is owned by Meta, which was formerly known as Facebook. Last year, the commission fined another meta unit, WhatsApp, then record 225 million euros for breaking data protection rules. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter today is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're talking about the British uh, Foreign Secretary Liz Truss becoming the new Prime Minister of the country after her victory over the former Finance Minister Rishi Sunak in the ruling Conservative Party's leadership election. Ms Truss is due to be formally appointed as PM by Queen Elizabeth later today, succeeding Boris.